Well, dear friends in the Lord, would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Acts and chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. We've been out of Acts for a week or so, so we're, as we come back to it, we are in the middle of one of these glorious sections of the Acts of the Apostles where Paul, or as he's called Saul in this passage, has been converted by the grace of Christ. And now we're going to see this new man engage in a new task. Before we read the word of the Lord, let's ask our God to help us understand. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to the word of life. And Lord, we pray that you would use your word to instruct us as to who you are and what you require of us. We pray that your spirit would be at work to sanctify us by the word of truth. We acknowledge our need of Your help to understand. So take Your eternal truth and write it upon our hearts. For we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Scriptures? Again, Acts chapter 9. We're at verse 19, kind of in the middle of the verse where there's a paragraph break. For some days, he, that is Saul of Tarsus, He was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by hand and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Well, thus far, God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. Well, thus far, Acts chapter 9 has shown us two things. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus as he was confronted by the risen Christ there on the Damascus road. And then secondly, the commission of Christ to Saul for his future ministry. This former hard-hearted Pharisee is now... Jesus' chosen instrument to bear Jesus' name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Saul has been plucked by the grace of God and given this sacred task. But it's a task, he was told, that would bring him much suffering. This suffering, we're told, is something that Saul must face back in verse 16. A word of divine necessity. And this suffering that he must face isn't the Lord Jesus paying Saul back for all of his former evil. Rather, his life is going to be conformed to Christ. He will experience the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus because as with any follower of Christ, there is a cross to take up. And yet as Saul faces the difficult road ahead, difficulties that are immediately discovered in our text, Luke has been showing us King Jesus' control. That Jesus rules hearts. He changed Saul and made him a new man. 
that Jesus governs the future. He will direct what it is Saul will do. And that Jesus equips His servants for the task. You remember He guided Ananias to Saul with all kinds of particular details. The street called Straight. The owner of the house is named Judas. The activity you'll find Saul doing. Behold, he is praying. It's a reminder to us, brethren, that Jesus' control isn't general. It's particular extending to very specific details. And then King Jesus is continually enabling His people for ministry. He fills Saul with the Spirit. And now filled with the Spirit, Saul will start his new life among the disciples at Damascus. And as he does, I want you to see three things as we make our way through this passage. First, we see proclaiming Jesus. Proclaiming Jesus. Now, right after Saul's eyes were opened and he was baptized by Ananias, we read, verse 19 again, for some days he, Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And it would be easy for us to blow past this verse in view of all the exciting stuff that will follow. But I don't want us to do that. As soon as Saul can see through the instrumentality of the servant of the Lord laying his hands on him, You remember giving him a striking greeting, Brother Saul. Right after that, he is received by the disciples at Damascus as a brother. I want you to think about how amazing that is. Would you want to be with this guy who had been hunting Christians to kill them? Likely through Ananias vouching for Saul, much like Barnabas is going to do in Jerusalem. We remember Barnabas. His name means son of encouragement. He's encouraging everyone to receive, but Ananias does it first. So this converted killer, this man breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he's now with the disciples of the Lord. That is, they spent time together. They enjoyed mutual fellowship. Saul suddenly has a new family and new associations. He severs his ties with his previous companions. We don't hear another word about the dudes who went with him to Damascus. They just fall into the background because Saul is now moving among believers. And doesn't this show us the readiness of Christ's people to love the formerly unlovable? To receive the repentant, even those with horrible backgrounds. That if someone has been changed by the Lord Jesus we welcome them into the fold and they're brought instantly into close association. And that connection, brethren, is a with one another connection. That is, we don't have a superficial attachment to one another, an occasional bump into each other. We do life together. Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. They're intimately tied together. They're moving among one another constantly. And this has so many implications. But we've already seen some in the book of Acts, how the disciples were eating together in one another's homes. They were praying together. They were spending time in close fellowship with one another. And in our disconnected society, don't we need to hear this? Are we with the disciples? Are we severing our former connections and recognizing that our life is with the saints of God? Are our lives attached 
I don't mean superficially, like we're on the roll, the church roll together of the same church, or we're all occupying the same space on a Sunday morning. I mean, are we with one another so that we would love one another and encourage one another and bear one another's burdens? This is how it should be because the church is a community of faith. The church is a body of believers. The church is this great building built together and every part matters. The church is a family. Is that how we see it? Are we conducting ourselves like that? Or are we doing what's so common to our age to slowly withdraw ourselves from the society of the people of God? Brother, I, I point this out because this is a major problem in our day. And it's a major problem even among us, how we can be self-centered, me-focused, and not living life together. But that's not what we're called to do. We're a people of God who are attached. Now, Luke is vague about the length of time that Saul was with the disciples at Damascus. He says it was for some days. But you can imagine as they're hanging out together, they're talking about their conversion stories, they're sharing about their study of the Scripture, how Jesus has been revealed in the Old Testament, the ways in which the prophets were pointing to Christ through the promises. They're seeking wisdom for daily life. But then Luke quickly moves on to show us Saul and his mission. And what should really grab your attention here is the word in verse 20, immediately. And immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. Now, in Paul's letter to the Galatians, probably the first letter that he wrote, responding to critics saying that he wasn't an apostle, that he's some kind of second-rate teacher, and his gospel is flawed, the apostle Paul actually speaks there about this move to immediately preach. And in the context of Galatians, Paul is clear to say, my apostleship didn't come because I donned myself Apostle Saul. No, Christ made me an apostle. I didn't go to Jerusalem immediately to be sanctioned by the pillars of the church. I didn't learn the gospel from men or receive it by tradition. I was converted by Christ directly and called by Christ directly because King Jesus is the one ruling the church and not just a group of men in Jerusalem. You see, brethren, yes, Jesus is using men But Jesus is the King. Jesus alone equips men with the gifts to serve. And Saul of Tarsus is being uniquely set apart as an apostle. A sent one is what that means. A man with a mission to proclaim Christ. And the converted Saul gets right to it. Life has been a waste for this man before this moment. And he's not going to wait another second to serve Jesus Christ. He's been called to carry Jesus' name and he does it immediately. And of course, there are things about the scene here that can't be applied to us. Apostleship is a unique thing. You have to have seen the risen Christ to be an apostle, so nobody qualifies today. You have to have a direct call from Christ, hearing his voice call you into ministry. These are unrepeatable, extraordinary events. But obedience to Jesus is ordinary. Or let me put it this way. Putting away the old life and getting down to business about serving Christ is how every Christian should live. 
when the Spirit of God is pleased to reveal to us the truth about our calling, about how to live, about what we ought to be doing, we should not delay. We must see ourselves as we are good soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ and get out following the voice of King Jesus immediately. Now, we're not all called to preach, but we're all called to follow Christ. We're all called to live as Christ's servants. Those who are devoted to the Master's voice, that we heed Him as King. And we show that we're doing that by bowing to His commands immediately. Was well, that how we live? Brethren, are we eager to obey, to put our shoulder to the plow, to serve Christ in whatever way He's called us to serve, even in the ordinary things of life, the mundane, changing diapers, having to educate your children, even the mundane things. Are we to our task immediately? Paul has a particular calling, and it's to preach. <clears throat> but as he engages in this task, he's not just doing it immediately. He was literally proclaiming Jesus. And, and the sense there in the text is ongoing action. Saul walks into the first synagogue and he preaches, and then he keeps going to synagogues. Do you notice the synagogue's plural? He's proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. And what is it he's saying about Jesus? Well, as he proclaims Jesus among the Jew first, he is saying, He, Jesus, is, verse 20, the Son of God. Now, this is the only time in the book of Acts this title is used, but throughout the Apostle Paul's letters, it's all over the place. Because the focal point of the Apostle Paul's ministry is to highlight the person of Christ. Who is He? He is the pre-existent Son of God, the one through whom all things were made, whether visible or invisible. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is equal with God. David's Son, yes, but David's Lord. He was the one with God in the beginning, but the one who took flesh, who as the Son, Paul will say in Galatians 2, loved me and gave Himself up for me. Remember how he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but I live by faith in the Son of God. He's the Son who died for our sins as a descendant of David according to the flesh, but has been exalted by the Spirit as the Son of God with power. And he, according to 2 Samuel 7, would sit on David's throne a forever throne of a forever kingdom, and He would reign forever. That's the announcement that Gabriel gives to Mary that we remember and often read in Luke 1. She was told that her child would bear the Son of God who would inherit the throne of His father David, and He would reign forever. And then Psalm 2 says, the nations belong to Him as His inheritance. To Him the Father has given authority, and your call is to kiss the Son. He is equal with God. You see what Saul is doing? He's proclaiming immediately that Jesus is equal with the Father, that Jesus shares the rule of God as Savior and Judge. He is the one upon whom you must call to be saved or you will face His wrath in the day of His return. Now, as the converted Saul speaks of Jesus in this way, no doubt indicating, as Jesus Himself said, that He's the one through whom you can be forgiven of sin, or salvation is only in His name, people were struck, maybe not so much by His preaching, but by the change in Him. You see that in verse 21? 
And all who heard him, Saul and his message, were amazed and said, What an amazing message from the Bible! No, that's not what they said at all. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? In other words, they're stupefied by the fact that this man has gone from persecuting those who call on Jesus' name to now preaching Jesus' name as divine. And they ask, didn't this guy come up to Damascus for the very purpose of arresting believers and taking them bound before the chief priests? And yet while people are amazed at the change in Saul, Saul doesn't use that as an occasion to preach himself. And he doesn't go on TV with an infomercial with a before and after picture. It's interesting, isn't it, among people with striking gifts, whether they're speaking gifts or artistic gifts or athletic gifts, that there's always the temptation to focus on yourself and your gift, your emergence to prominence, and not return praise to the giver. I have a musical background. We have a word for this. Sorry, ladies, because it's used almost always of ladies. A diva. A diva. You become a diva. Everything's about you. People are pulsating with self-importance. They're puffed up in their own power and they promote their greatness. That is not what Saul does. He doesn't use this situation to talk about, look at me, look at the change in me. He just keeps preaching Jesus. He makes his ministry all about Jesus. How will he put it to the Corinthians? I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Or to the Ephesians, to me, though I am the very least among all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Or again to the Corinthians, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. This is His whole life. And then what will He tell Timothy before He dies? Preach the Word. Preach Jesus. Preach the Son of God. You see, Saul of Tarsus is slaying his former pride and he gives Jesus the preeminence. Brethren, that is what preaching should do all the time. The proclamation of God's Word isn't limited to the doctrine of the person of Christ. There are other doctrines that we preach. But without an understanding that Jesus is Lord and King, that Jesus is the author of salvation, that Jesus is the one who pardons sin, that Jesus has the power to set you free, you miss the boat. God is summing up everything, Ephesians 1, in Christ. Indeed, isn't it the Spirit's ministry? Jesus says in John 16, the Spirit will glorify Jesus. The Spirit puts the spotlight on the Lord Jesus, the one with divine power to pardon your sin. And this Son of God must be declared relentlessly that sinners may turn to Him, the great I Am, for salvation. Now dear friends, we're not all preachers here, though some of us are and some of us want to be. We're not all called to this task of proclaiming Christ. But isn't the Christian life all about being preoccupied, singly focused on the Lord Jesus Christ? How will Paul put it in that famous verse, Philippians 1.21? For to me, to live is Christ. What's he saying? My life is totally wrapped up in the Lord Jesus. I keep Him relentlessly in view. Is that the way that we live? 
Are we obsessed with the Lord Jesus, with His supremacy of Son, as the Son, with His compassion to care for us, His power to rescue us, His omnipotent hand to hold us? Is Christ our head, our authority, our mighty God, our Prince of Peace? Paul is proclaiming the Lord Jesus. And our lives should be about proclaiming Him. But then secondly, see with me. Not just proclaiming Jesus, confounding the Jews. Before Paul confounds his adversaries, I want you to note a comment about his strength. People were enamored with what Paul had been. Maybe they're stuck in the past and not hearing the message. But verse 22, Saul, Saul of Tarsus, increased all the more in strength. Or more literally, but Saul more being continually strengthened. Now, bring out the literal language because it's crucial not just to highlight the perpetual increase of strength which the ESV is doing, but to see the source of that strength. You notice it's a passive verb. Literally, being strengthened. No, that's not how it reads, but that's what it is. Being strengthened. In other words, Saul wasn't strengthening himself. This is not the power hour of the Apostle Paul where he's going to rip telephone books in half, and pump some iron as he preaches the Word. That is a total misunderstanding of the nature of strength. The focus is on spiritual strength. And this word of being strengthened is a favorite of the Apostle Paul to talk about strength coming from the grace of Christ. Ephesians 6.10 Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Or most famously, Philippians 4.13 I can do all things through... Him who strengthens me. He's the strengthening agent. But how does the strength come to me? Well, the primary means of spiritual strength is in the Word itself. We're born again by the Word as it's proclaimed, Peter says, and we are thereby to crave that Word as newborn babies so that we may grow up in salvation. We feed on the Word. And doesn't Scripture use analogies like this, telling us the Word is sweeter than honey, or the Word is pure spiritual milk, or the Word is solid food for the mature, or Ezekiel or John the Apostle are told to eat the Word. The Spirit of God uses the Word ingested, internalized, treasured in the heart to build us up, to increase our strength, to help us fight unbelief, resist sin, and to promote our spiritual focus, nourishing our hope laid up in heaven. Well, that's what's happening with Saul. In his early days after he's converted, he isn't just preaching Christ, he's studying to preach Christ. Wouldn't you like it that way? Uh, He's studying to preach Christ. He's preparing that he would know Christ better. He's taking in the Word. He's becoming strong in the Scriptures. Now again, Saul has a unique calling that demands he approach the Word of God like a workman, diligently preparing to handle the truth. But isn't the implicit exhortation reflected in Saul's life for all of us that we're to grow in spiritual strength as we attend to the Word? Brother, we want to be equipped, as the Apostle Paul will say, to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We want to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against Christ. We want to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus. We want the Word 
to be, as the psalmist says, a counselor to us, a light for our path, a means to enable us to have endurance and patience. That doesn't happen automatically. Saul's strength here doesn't come without labor. The Spirit uses means. So Saul, exercise diligence. You're never going to grow in spiritual strength unless you put in some effort. And interestingly, when the Apostle Paul describes the Christian life, how will he describe it? It's a race. It's a boxing match. It's a wrestling competition. It's a good fight. Well, may we be strengthened all the more as we give time devoting ourselves to the Word. But here as Paul, or Saul as he's known in the text, as he engages in knowing the Word better and proclaiming the Word, what happens? Well, he's preaching Christ and he's confounding, in the sense is ongoing again, he was confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. In the previous point, Saul was proclaiming the person of the Lord Jesus. He is the Son of God. But now he's proving that Jesus is the Christ, which is focused on the work that the Christ would do. What is the work that the Christ would do? Well, the title Christ or Messiah means anointed one. And what were the offices on which you were anointed in the Old Testament? There are three, prophet, priest, and king. And what Saul was doing is proving from the Scriptures that Jesus is the great prophet, priest, and king. He is the Messiah equipped by the Spirit to be our king, to judge us in righteousness, Isaiah 11. He is the one who would sustain the weary with the word, Isaiah 42 or not break the bruised reed. He's speaking truth to us. He's the one, according to Isaiah 53, would be pierced for our transgressions and would intercede for us. He's a priest. And then, no doubt, he was explaining Jesus did this while He was on earth, but He's doing it now as the exalted Christ in heaven. He's showing them from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 9 and Daniel 7. Jesus is the Christ and He's reigning. But as Saul engages in this rational argumentation, he's proving things and from the Scripture, saying that, look, brethren, Jesus is the hope of the prophets. Jesus fulfills the covenant plan of God. Jesus is the seed of David. Jesus is the seed of Abraham. Jesus is the one in whom all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is the fountain filled with blood to cleanse. As he was proving these things, the Jews were confounded or bewildered. What's that mean? Well, it doesn't just mean they were mystified. It means that they weren't receiving the message. And they sunk deeper and deeper into confusion. Much like was the case with Stephen when he preached, however. People were unable to withstand him. The word was coming with power and they couldn't counter-argue. But they sink deeper and deeper in sin. It's a bit ironic, isn't it? That's what was happening with Saul before he was converted. He raged against Stephen because he couldn't prove him wrong. And now he's rescued and he's preaching and people are raging against him. But it should be a reminder to us of how God's sovereignty is working when the Word is preached. With some, darkness is expelled as the light of the Word shines. With others, even though the Word is clear, the darkness remains and deepens. The sense of being confounded 
is that these people are sinking further and further into perplexity. It was as in Isaiah's ministry that he would preach to a people, but only confusion would come to the unbelieving. And yet what the scene shows us with Saul is the Lord is equipping him to proclaim the Word of God, to argue the supremacy of the Christ from the Scriptures. And the apostle is just in the dawn of his ministry, but he's already growing, don't you see, to be a mighty weapon in the hand of God. But as the power of God working in him is increasing, so too does the persecution. See finally with me. Forced to flee. We have a brief report in verses 23 to 25 of a harrowing situation in Saul's ministry. It's a situation where Galatians 1 and 2 Corinthians 11 give us a few more details. Verse 23 reports, vaguely again, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now in Galatians 1, Paul tells us the many days, it actually amounts to three years. And during those three years, Paul preached at Damascus. And then he also went to Arabia, the ancient Nabataean kingdom, which is east of Damascus, modern-day Jordan down to Saudi Arabia. And then Paul came back to Damascus again. And it's already clear in verse 22 that as the Apostle Paul, or Saul as he's known here, as he's preaching, he's stirring up people in hatred. The Damascus Jews are frustrated in their anger at their inability to shut him up or prove him wrong leads to them wanting to kill him much like it happened with Stephen. The Jews hatch some sort of plot. We don't know what it is, but somehow the secret comes out, Saul finds out, and they, he finds out specifically, verse 24, that they were watching the gates, this will be the city gates, day and night in order to kill him. Now 2 Corinthians 11 gives us another interesting detail as Paul is relating his long list of sufferings in that passage. He writes there, at Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. And what makes that common intriguing is King Erastus was the king in Arabia, another place. And the king of Arabia clearly has been stirred up to attack Saul. Saul had gone to Arabia, he had preached the gospel, it had come with power, but people are resisting. Resisting to the highest level of the political scene. And now this gruntled king is in cahoots with the Jews in Damascus to stop Saul of Tarsus. And haven't we seen that as we've made our way through the book of Acts? It doesn't matter whether it's been Peter's preaching or the apostles preaching generally or Stephen's preaching. Every time the word comes with power, what is the devil doing? Fighting back and aiming to silence people. Everywhere the word of God spreads, Satan is rising up to resist. He hates the truth and he works in the sons of disobedience to attack the truth. We're going to keep seeing that in the book of Acts and we're going to see it all throughout the New Testament. The success of the gospel cannot be forced into some type of triumphal, Power. That is, all we ever hear is about the progress of the gospel. There is both triumph of the word as King Jesus saves souls, but then there's antagonism, bold-faced hostility to Christ and all who stand for Him. Brethren, don't forget this. 
Sometimes we, we get in a ditch on either side. Nobody's hearing the gospel. Everybody's an enemy. That's never the case. People are being saved. Everybody's being saved. There are no enemies. That's never the case. It's always both. And yet what's interesting in God's providence is how things unfold as the word grows and assaults come. Stephen, we have one sermon, and then what happens to him? He's martyred. But Saul, at this moment, who's been preaching at this point for three years, he isn't. He's spared. It will be interesting later in Acts 12 when James, the apostle, the brother of John, is beheaded for Christ and the angel lets Peter out of jail. Why is it that way for one and not the other? Well, who's in charge? King Jesus is in charge. King Jesus will determine when his servants will fall and when they shall escape. In this case, even though the king of the Arabia region, Erastus, even though he's collaborating with Jews in the city of Damascus to watch the gates night and day and everything looks hopeless, somehow Saul still gets away. How does he get away? Well, it's obviously by the mercy of God, but look at the story. Verse 25, But his disciples, the disciples of Saul of Tarsus, striking phrase, there's opposition, but people are being converted and they're seeing Paul as their teacher. He's training them. But they took... Saul of Tarsus, by night, and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When the Apostle Paul recounts this episode in 2 Corinthians, he will use this as the final example to show his weakness. Saul of Tarsus had been a man committed to a prideful strength, aiming to dominate and stamp out the church. But when Jesus lays hold of him, he's going to show him how weak he is. He's strong in the Scriptures, but he has to live as a servant of Christ. And it's not by might or even by persuasive power that he can get away from the bloodthirsty Jews. He has to be snuck out of town at night. In fact, the language here that Saul's disciples took him may well indicate he didn't want to go. They had to press him into this action. They had to constrain him, persuade him to leave. Because what would the flesh tell you to do? Stand and fight. Go down in flames. Be a blaze of glory. Die like a man. Or some other machoism. Saul will have to go through the humiliation of being let down in a basket through a window like he's a loaf of bread. But what is God doing in His providence? Well, He's showing this man He's weak. But He's also going to show He's going to use him in the future for the good of the church. If Saul dies right here, we don't get even one letter in the New Testament from him. Jesus has him sent away because while suffering is going to attend him in other places and eventually he will die a martyr, there's many things Christ has for him to accomplish first. Maybe the logic that persuaded Saul to get into the basket was, hey, Jesus called you to be the apostle to the Gentiles and you've barely even talked to any Gentiles. And while he'll say in Philippians how he desires to depart and be with Christ, which is very much better, it's more necessary for your sake that I remain. He's dying to himself and he's ready to be a servant to the church. His love for the people of God is beginning to emerge. He listens to those telling him to get out of the city and he's willing to be humiliated that he might help others. 
Don't you see that Saul is clearly a man with new priorities? Everything for him is different. Before it was all about him. Now it's all about Christ and all about helping the people of God. Brethren, this man's calling is unique. But let's take away, as we close, three principles. Immediate obedience. This is what Christ would have us to do. Follow Him now. Not later. Now. Are you hesitating to follow the Lord Jesus? Diligence. How did Paul grow to be a mighty preacher? He had to study Scripture. Are you doing that? Are you committing your life to knowing God? And then thirdly, submission. He didn't want to get out of town. Too bad. You have to bow to King Jesus. Are you trying to tell Jesus, this is how it's going to be in my life, Jesus? Are you bowing to Him as Lord? Is He truly the preeminent King in your eyes? May He be to all of us. Brother, let's pray together. Lord our God, we come and we acknowledge that You are great and Your saving mercies are phenomenal. That You would take this wretch of a man, Saul of Tarsus, and You would make him Your own and fit his mouth to proclaim Christ. Lord, we pray for ourselves, knowing that we are ugly in ourself and our sin, and Your saving grace lays hold of us, that You have things for us to do, and we pray, O Lord, that we would engage in serving Christ immediately and serving Christ with diligence. May our lives be given over in submission to Jesus. May it never be said of us that we are lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Lord, work these graces in us by the power of Your Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.